Welcome to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Survive and Thrive, a podcast co-hosted by Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and Courtney Nordrum, Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe. This season on Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters, which befell companies because they weren't looking at the right clues, had their collective heads in the sand, or did not expect the unexpected. If you want to know how to prepare for and avoid disasters from the compliance perspective, this podcast series is the podcast series for you. Survive and Thrive. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Survive and Thrive, one of the newest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network. We have several others, so check them out. But in this podcast, we unpack compliance crises and disasters, walking you through the red flags which appeared and were ignored or were not even noticed. And we give you some lessons learned going forward. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Courtney Nordrum. I'm Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe in Minnesota. On this season of Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters, the unpleasant situations that companies find themselves in when they weren't looking for the right clues, had their heads in the sand, or didn't yet know how to see around the corners and expect the unexpected. Today's episode is about having a cult leader who runs a public corporation. And of course, is completely hypothetical, as per usual. Yes, but before we get to some of the facts I wanna throw at you, hypothetical facts, excuse me, I wanna throw at you. Really, how do we think about the success of many technology companies, Courtney, in terms of uh, disruption. So obviously Uber comes to mind, uh, Airbnb, but you name the the business and they have disrupted an existing business, but that disruption came from someone with vision and not, not simply a vision, but actually a work ethic to make that vision succeed. And they may have had to struggle, they may have challenged long standing beliefs, uh, particularly Uber. I know I didn't think anyone would ever break the taxi uh, medallions or the taxi regulations, but Uber did, and in a lot of other industries. And that is really a a different kind of person than you want running a mature multi-billion dollar corporation. And I think uh, certainly in our lifetime, seeing that that struggle with that transition has been something. What what are kind of your general thoughts on the people who are really great at disruption, who are really great at innovative disruption? And is it simply maturity or are they just not really designed to be the leaders of a mature corporation? I I, I think um, all due respect to the disruptors because I love them for what they've done and I buy pretty much all of their products. Um, but I, I think it's that the people who found these unicorns and completely change how we think about things. Um, Uber is a great example. When I was in, in high school, it was never give a stranger on the internet your name or address. And now I actually pay to use an app to give an internet stranger my name and address so that they can drive me somewhere. Um, but the, the people who think about these things are good at disrupting, at thinking outside the box, as cliche as it sounds, about challenging the norm and the cliche and doing things that no one has done before. 
those make them great founders of unicorn companies and disruptive companies. I don't know that they make them great leaders. Uh, I'm thinking of Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs was a fantastic founder and an idea man, but pretty much everyone around him said that he was a pain in the tush to work with regularly. And he had weird quirks. And so it, it's one of those things where the ideas need to come from somewhere and they're great at ideas, but I don't think that people who exist in that space necessarily have the same tools to exist in, in the very corporate space of, of what it takes to run a successful company. So you, you need the people, the visionaries, you also need the people who are more practical, who know that there are rules and controls and laws and forms to fill out. Um, and without both, you're going to crumble. See, we work. So let me throw some, some hypothetical facts at you. And I'm going to use the pronoun he, not because I'm a sexist, but because Elizabeth Holmes aside, uh, there's probably not too many of these disruptive unicorns that uh, really are in the public forefront. And uh, I think she was uh, something very different anyway. Um, and so you have a uh, uber popular uh, leader who's uber dynamic and indeed uber famous. And that man uh, can bend the wind to his will, or so he thinks. But unfortunately, he also thinks uh, rules and regulations like the SEC, uh, disclosure, financial statements, those are, yeah, for really mere mortals, of which he is not one. He routinely makes statements that drive his share price up and down, not in the context of an earnings call. Uh, he threatens employees with termination on the spot. Uh, for those who don't meet his rigorous work standards, uh, even though the company has a written due process policy that uh, HR has implemented. So you've got uh, someone who's is really living on the edge. If I could even have a cross-cultural reference for those who want to let your freak flag fly. Um, and how do you structure, how can you create a structure <clears throat> I don't want to say to lessen his over-the-top personality, but perhaps protect the company and uh, work with that uh, going forward. Uh, how can you use your board of directors? How can you keep the company in line if if not the CCO? And other than perhaps during your resignation or not taking the job to start with, where might you start? Um. First step is with our risk management and insurance group to make sure that our DNO, our directors and officers liability insurance is up to date and current. Um, because oh, that's let me, let me stop you there because he's also said, we don't need no stinking DNO coverage. I'll personally indemnify all of the board of directors out of my own pocket. Not, <laughs> not a conflict of interest, just because I'm a good guy. Right, um, then I quit. No. Um, so I, I think that there are CEOs and, and the cult of personality with CEOs started long before we had the technology CEOs that we do now. So Lee Iacocca, um, people got Jamie Dimon, I think there's a the kind of a cult of personality around him as well. People got 
interested in companies because of who was running them, not necessarily the companies themselves or what they were selling. And so you've got these leaders um, who sometimes have destructive impulses, we'll call them. Can I stop I, you there? Yeah. Because uh, I know some of the places you've worked and you've worked for some quite dynamic individuals who ran the organizations. And they didn't get to the CEO chair because they're not dynamic, because they're wilting flowers, or because they're not, you know, in the top 5% of Mensa. These are smart people, driven people who can keep focus. So how, how can we separate those people that you and I both agree are special from really kind of these others? Right. So I, I do not have a magic answer to that. Although I agree that we need the special people. Um, and, and from a compliance standpoint, I look at it really in two lenses. One lens is who's under the spell of the CEO? Is it internal or is it external? If everyone internally is under the spell, that to me presents a different problem than if it's an external spell. Mostly because of when internally, everyone's under the spell of the CEO, perhaps the board is under the spell, then that CEO has power beyond what they should. And the, the prime example I'm thinking is Enron. Jeff Skilling somehow convinced the board to waive their code of ethics for himself and other senior leaders so that they could participate in these crazy accounting schemes. His influence went too far internally. No one was there to check what he was doing and what he was saying. And he surrounded himself with yes people who were so bought into the person that they just agreed to whatever he said. Internally, it's a culture issue. <clears throat> so you have to make sure that from a culture perspective, you have people who are keeping perspective. Who is monitoring? Who's making sure that there are controls in place and that those controls are being enforced? In that kind of scenario, um, the controls, the people being the grown-ups are going to be seen as the police and the people ruining the fun and the people stomping on ideas. But they're also the people who are going to keep the organization from being shut down because they're not being sued out of existence or a regulator's not coming in. If you watch, uh, is it HBO or, or Apple TV? There's a show called Mythic Quest. <laughs> and it's about these gaming, this gaming company. And they're all these brilliant gamers and their software and they're just super creative. And then they've got HR and, and legal. And everybody hates HR and legal because they're the fun stoppers. But when you watch it from our lens, I go, well, they're preventing you from getting sued for this, that, this, and the other and they're necessary. They have to rein it in um, when all of the creative people don't necessarily understand the rules that, that they have to live by. So internally, you have to have some fun stoppers. Um, if the influence and, and the magic dust is over external and, and the world is looking up to the CEO and thinks that they're the bee's knees, I think that's a little bit different because you would still potentially have control internally on what's happening. I'm trying to think of someone who's adored 
generally, uh, but internally isn't screwing things up regularly. <laughs> um, and it's, it's one of those things where if, if the scrutiny is coming from an internal place, then you can actually have the controls and make sure that the controls are working. If it's external, then we're going to need to make sure that we've built something that's defensible from a regulatory standpoint. So Elon Musk um, could not pay me enough money to work for him, not that he would ever want to hire me, because the SEC wants nothing more than to make him have a babysitter, like a literal babysitter for his social media. Um, they, they actually told him he had to have a babysitter and then he ignored the babysitter and the SEC still said, uh, you're too important to shareholders to get rid of. So that kind of situation, I, I think the leverage is going to have to be your independent directors on the board because at, at the end of the day, the board is the boss of the CEO. And when nobody below the CEO, the external regulators and everybody screaming can't get you to do what you're supposed to do, then the people who essentially sign your paycheck are the ones who are going to need to do that. As a founder, he's got a lot of clout, even with his board. Um, and so one of the ways the SEC has tried to, I'll, I'll say rope him in, is actually said you have to appoint two additional independent members onto your board because you need i'm going to paraphrase more babysitters um so in, in in that case i think you have to go to your board and go to the independent board members and really make the case as to how the cult of personality and the ceo or the leader that's out there making destructive choices is actually destroying pieces of your business. Credibility, adding risk, um, because it's their job is to protect the company. And if the CEO is a liability or presents insurmountable risk, then that is going to ultimately lay on the board's shoulders. How about risks that cannot be managed? Oof, right? Um, there's always, I suppose, a conversation of risk as to what the risk tolerance is and, and the ROI of keeping someone who's so dynamic that they're bringing in investors and bringing in attention, but knowing you're going to have to pay fines or have a some sort of you know regulatory monitoring it's it, it, it's gonna turn out to be an roi i think discussion at the board level how much are we willing to tolerate in order to continue making money in this way and when does that turn so i'm often asked the following question at what point of a startup's life should they institute internal controls? Uh, and this is typically not, we don't need no stinking internal controls attitude. It's that starting out, they were interested in a product or a service. 
and disrupting around that and really hadn't thought about internal controls. Uh, I share when asked that question, you should have internal controls instituted as quickly as possible because it is so much easier to create a set of internal controls and then scale them up rather than scale your company up and then try to overlay a set of internal controls. What's your thoughts around that topic? Uh, Tom, like with most things, I agree with you. I would say as soon as you start hiring people who aren't your friends and that you're not paying in beer is when you need to start uh, implementing some internal controls because the trigger being uh, you're actually going to have to have a payroll of some sort. You're, there are processes to hire people in, in the US to see if they're able to work and all of those things. And so you're going to have to go through some hoops to set up some controls anyway. So that's the trigger that I think just off the top of my head would be an easy one. When you start hiring people, that's when you have to start caring about compliance. That's when you have to start caring about um, making sure that you have internal control structures built to support what you're building. Um, <clears throat> that being said, the way you operate should always be compliant. So if you are getting into a highly regulated regulated industry, if you're creating an app like Venmo, that should be built with a vision for the controls you need before you write any lines of code. So you're going to have to know what regulations, what laws, what rules it has to be built to support before you even go in. Um, but the assumption being you've built a product that isn't in a highly regulated space, you just rev revolutionized the world, Airbnb, and now you have to figure out how to make a company out of it. And so I would say when you start hiring people, that's when you need to start building your compliance program. Uh, Courtney, there uh, I think are some uh, lessons here, but are there maybe two or three top lessons uh, you would uh, share with us about uh, this situation around having a, a very dynamic leader in a startup company that uh, experiences exponential or high growth and what that might mean going forward? Lessons learned. Culture trumps everything. And so whether you're working for a very charismatic disruptor CEO or whether you're working for a very conservative CEO, um, the culture should be one of compliance. And if it's not, then as a compliance professional, it's your job to try and get it there. With the, I'll call them charismatic CEOs, the superstar CEOs, um, and, and other top executives, they don't want to accept limits and they don't want to accept any kind of knock to their authority. And so if you cannot get through to them with fear or incentives, then the board is going to be your best uh, carrot and stick, I think. So for our quote today, I found one that it, uh, it certainly resonated with me. And so I wanna share it with you and our listeners, and it comes uh, from all people. Uh, Steffi Graf, uh, the tennis champion married to Andre Agassi. 
And she said, you can have a certain arrogance, and I think that's fine, but what you should never lose is respect for others. And the other thing that I would say about the charismatic leaders I have worked for is they were, uh, some of them were incredibly demanding. But because they were incredibly demanding, I had to up my game. And when I did up my game to a level that they thought was appropriate, they acknowledged that. Now, they would criticize me greatly uh, for errors or not upping my game. But I guess uh, it really ties into what Steffi Graf said, that uh, even if you do work for a disruptive leader, even if you do work for a, for a high-flying Uber technologically uh, savvy uh, person, if they, if they still respect you and your work, that that's a key leadership. Would that be consistent with what you found as well? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's the one non-negotiable. So in business, there are a lot of negotiables. Risk tolerance, negotiable, depending on where you are from a corporate standpoint. But the non-negotiable is, is being a decent human being and respecting others and respecting who they are um, and, and their right to be who they are. So I think that's really important to not lose sight of. Well, Courtney, we're at the RN, so you want to take us home? Sure. Join us again for our next episode of Survive and Thrive. I've been Courtney Nordrum. And I'm Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast? Do you have an idea which you think would be helpful to the compliance community? Do you have a great story to tell? If any of these are true, why don't you start a podcast and put it on the Compliance Podcast Network? I have partnered with One Stone Creative to create a end-to-end solution for you to tell your story on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you have questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and more importantly, I hope you will tell your story with your podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network.